Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to episode number 31 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. First of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to episode number 31 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? So I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 Music fan slash expert slash nerd, and each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s, and I first talk about my opinion on the song, why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song. And then, in the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind the track. I, in that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who played on it, who were the studio musicians on the track, all the behind-the-scenes details on each song I talk about within each episode of this podcast is going to be in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on with this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to let you guys know, um, like, I don't know if you guys have noticed this last week, but I did not put out an episode last Sunday. Um, And now the reason for this being is because, um, unfortunately, what happened, uh, well, a couple of things. One, uh, last Sunday, or last week, perhaps, was Thanksgiving, and I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a break uh, to spend some for you, for you guys to spend some time with your family during the holiday, and so I didn't put out an episode last week because it was Thanksgiving. You know, it's always good to take a week off for the holidays and then get right back on it when the holidays are done. At least uh, Thanksgiving is. I'll probably also take a week off for Christmas and New Year's as well. Um, but other than that, uh, I also unfortunately what happened was that my old audio interface was no longer compatible with my computer anymore. I used it for about four years, so I had to, long story short, I had to upgrade to a brand new audio interface, and I got that this week, so um, I didn't, I could not record any new episodes last week because I just didn't have uh, an audio interface that would work with my computer, but now that I have a brand new interface that works just fine with my machine, I'm going to get back to recording uh, and putting out new podcast episodes, so just, uh, you know, hang tight, and also I want to say that... um, Last artist to talk about on the show is the Bee Gees. Now, I mentioned this briefly before in the last episode I put out. Um, a lot of the, the... Everyone knows about the Bee Gees, okay? A lot of people are familiar with their music, okay? And I really want to show people their, a, a part of their history a lot of people are unfamiliar with. Um, but So, because we did kind of a really well-known artist last week... I'm going. Uh, next week's podcast is going to be a, featuring an artist that you probably won't be familiar with at all and i guarantee you probably won't know the song you probably won't know this artist but that's the whole point of the show i'm trying to show people uh you know the the little wonder the obscure little one or two hit wonders that you know didn't really carry over to our gener to my generation you know a lot of people my age would be very unfamiliar with these artists so that's what i'm going to be doing for the next couple episodes of this podcast so expect for me to talk about um, artists or songs you've probably never heard of before, but I think you'll like a lot. So that's what I'm going to be doing for the next couple episodes. But then I'll shed some light on some more well-known artists, at least to people my age later on the show. But for now, I'm going to keep keep it obscure for these next couple episodes of this podcast, at least to people our age. 
But moving on, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? Okay, so the song I'm going to be doing with this week's episode of the podcast, um, it, I guarantee you probably don't know this song. Um, it's definitely, um, this artist only had a couple hits, and this was definitely his biggest hit song that he ever had. <clears throat> and he was not a one-hit wonder. He had another hit song after this, but... For most people, you know, it's fair to say that he was a one-hit wonder because this is his only top ten hit. But anyways, um, you might not know the song or this artist, but there are definitely some interesting things about this particular song uh, when it was released and how it was recorded that are very interesting. Um, we'll get into all of that in the second part of this podcast when we talk about the history behind it. But for now, I'm going to show you what makes the song interesting, what makes it really good. The song was recorded in May of 1962 and released in February of 1964. It's by an artist named Terry Stafford. It's none other than Suspicion. Every time you kiss me, I'm still not certain. Holy crap, I just went from 6 to midnight mentioning the song, but before we dive into what makes a song so interesting lyrically, we have to talk about what makes a song interesting musically first. Okay, so I'm sorry if I'll disappoint any music theory nerds that listen to the show, but this song does not have the most amazing, most interesting chord progression ever written. In fact, it was simply just a four-chord song with a one to minor two back to the major one change in the verses and a minor six to major five change in the chorus back to the verses. But the chord progression is not what makes this song interesting. It's the way the song sounds sonically and how it was produced that makes it interesting because if you listen to it, the record sounds so muddy that you can't really hear any instruments in the song besides the bass. And another very strange but cool sounding instrument. But really, it almost sounds like a total wall of sound record. But the fact that everything is sounds so muddy in this track is actually a good thing. Because there really isn't anything in this track that would become a major distraction from the song's lead and backup vocals. Um, but because everything is so buried in the mix that only two instruments in the song are audible. But I really do love the pick bass line in the song. It almost serves as a hook by itself. And I love the other instrument in this song that is also following the bass line in this track. And while we're at it, let's talk about exactly what that other instrument is in this song. Because if you listen to the song, the first question that might pop up in your head is, what the hell is that instrument? Because to an average person's ear, it sure sound, does sound like a trumpet, but one that was completely over-compressed and EQ'd to death with so much signal processing on it that it sounds so teeny and thin and not full and well-rounded like what a normal trumpet would sound like on a record. And i got to be honest with you, I honestly thought this, that instrument in the song was a trumpet that was completely over-compressed because that is exactly what it sounded like to me when I first heard the song. And I'm sure you thought the exact same thing if you do listen to the song. But after doing some research, I was surprised to find out that it wasn't over-compressed an EQ trumpet, but actually a synthesizer. In fact, the main instrument on the song is in fact a really super early synthesizer known as the Ondioline. And I know what you're thinking. Sam, what the hell is an Ondioline? Well, if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering what the answer to that question is, you've come to the right place because I'll explain to you exactly what an Ondioline is right now. 
The instrument was invented in 1928 in France to be modeled after another French organ called the Andos, which was an organ that could replicate the sounds that can come out of a theremin, but unlike the Andos, which didn't have a whole lot of built-in sounds to play with, the Andio line was originally built, had 15 sliders on it that could replicate any real woodwind horn instruments, such as the oboe and the French horn. And it also had its own totally unique sound as well. The guy who made the Andio line... Famous in France was a guy named John Jack Perry, and he was the one who brought it into the States. The first big hit in the U.S. to feature the instrument was an instrumental song called More, which was recorded in New York by trombonist Kai Windig. The instrument also got used on Save It For Me by Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons and Mirage by Tommy and James and the Shondells. Now, the Anya line in the song is featured all throughout this track. It's very prominent throughout the song and in the chorus and the verses. And I really do think that the instrument is what made this record very unique sounding and one that is completely in to- with that is complete and total muddiness to the point where you can only hear two instruments on the record, um, the, the bass and the keyboards. But we'll really get into exactly what makes this record sound so muddy in the second part of this podcast. Moving on, let's talk about what the song is about lyrically, because I really do think the lyrics for the song hold up quite nicely. But what I want you to hear in the song is I want you to hear the song with the ears of somebody from back then, give you more of a perspective of the era in which the song was written in. But first, let me ask you this. Do you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Well, if the answer to that question is yes, I'm sure you you uh, at some point in the relationship had that sinky, suspicious feeling that your partner has been unfaithful to you and seeing somebody else behind your back. Now, I know this is the absolute last thought that anybody could have in any relationship um, between a boy and a girl or a guy, but look, in this day and age, if you want to find out for 100% certain if that's true, and sometimes it usually, and most of the time, it probably isn't true, but if you want to find that out, it's so easy to find out if your partner has been unfaithful to you for certain because with today's technology and like social media and texting i mean all you have to do is just get and get your partner's password to their social media accounts and phones and check their message to see if they had been talking to or trying to meet up with somebody else but let me put things in perspective for you within the context of this song and the era that it was written in see if you were to hear the song you would know that it's obvious that the song is about a man that is paranoid that his girlfriend might be cheating on him and is worried that that actually might be true, but is currently unsure of that in this song. He doesn't know if his girlfriend's been unfaithful to him. And I know what you're thinking. Well, you can always find out. I mean, you can always check his girl's phone and messages and see if she's actually been unfaithful to him or not. But you got to keep in mind is that in this, in the time frame that this song was written in 50 years ago, social media and cell phones did not exist, okay? So he couldn't have checked his girl's phone to see if she's been texting or messaging another guy because that technology didn't even exist back then. In fact, if you think about it, there was no real way of, of him being able to find out whether or not his girl had been unfaithful to him or not. So he basically had to rely on his girlfriend's word. So if you think about it, there is definitely a validity to his feelings and what he's trying to say or ask in the song, especially with lines like, though you keep on saying you really, really love me, do you say the same words to someone else when I'm not there? 
Or, every time you call me and tell me we should meet tomorrow, I can't help but think that you're meeting someone else tonight. You see, there's no way for him to verify to, is that uh, whether or not his girlfriend was saying, I love you to another guy, or was meeting another guy on the night that he was specifying because he couldn't have checked his girl's phone because cell phones didn't exist 50 years ago. And he couldn't have checked his girl's voicemails because guess what? Voicemails didn't exist back then either. <laughs> Now, the only way he might have been able to find out if his girl's been unfaithful to him back then, not today, but 50 years ago, is if he went through her mail to see if she had written to another man. But then again, he would have had to writ through her mail before she mailed out the letters. Otherwise, it would have been too late to see if she had written any letters to another guy. Or he could have checked her incoming mail to see if she had gotten any letters from another guy. Uh, but this was probably the only way he could have found out for 100% certain whether or not his girl had really been cheating on him or not. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind the song, because you probably don't know this song, but it definitely has a very interesting history behind it, all the way from the making of the song all the way up to its release. But before we get into all that, I need to make some parallels to some other things to get into the main points in this part of the episode. Now, one question that might have popped inside your brain when you first listened to the song was this originally an Elvis song? Because Terry Stafford sure does sounds a lot like the king of rock and roll. Well, your assumption is correct. This should come no surprise to you, but this was originally recorded by Elvis first and written for him. Now, since we are not doing an Elvis song this week for my podcast, I will not go into the history of Elvis, but I will say that he was one of the earliest trailblazers of rock and roll back when the genre wasn't even called rock and roll. He was successfully able to blend genres such as bluegrass and rhythm and blues into a whole brand new sound that at the time when he created it was unclassifiable and nothing like what most people were hearing before at a time when people were being inundated with white adult contemporary pop songs like That's Amore by Dean Martin and How Much Is That Doggy in the Window. He gave black songwriters like Otis Blackwell a voice back when music was so segregated and there was a huge separation between the blacks and the whites in terms of music. Um, and his idea to cover songs uh, by African-American rhythm and blues artists and songwriters helped mix the races together back when everything where the races were just so separated. But moving on, the song was written for Elvis by Doc Palmas and Mort Schumann. And it was written for his then publishing company Gladys Music. But Elvis originally recorded the song as an album cut and never released as a single on his Potluck album, which was released in 1962. Now, one thing I will say about this and this is that I've heard the original version by Elvis and, of course, this version by Terry Stafford. And honestly, there isn't that much of a difference between both versions of the song. Terry Stafford more or less copied the basic arrangement of the song from the Elvis Presley original. He even sang it in the same key as the original Elvis recording and kept the same chords and the exact same melody and lyric and overall structure. But the big difference between both versions is how both versions of the song sound sonically. One sounds pretty clear and each instrument can clearly be heard in the song and it doesn't really sound that muddy. Plus, there are different instruments being used in both versions of the song. On the Elvis version, the song is emphasized with piano and a harpsichord, whereas in the Terry Stafford version, it is emphasized by a keyboard and electric bass. But both versions follow the same structure, the three verses and the three verses, and the three choruses. 
and that classic rhythm change in the chorus. And plus, one version has pretty noticeable and distinct female backup vocals, and the other one doesn't. But enough comparing the two versions of the song, let's get to the hit version of the song, which is what I'm going to be talking about in this week's episode of the podcast. Before I get into that, I want to again talk a little history about how they recorded music back then versus today. See, long before the days of Pro Tools and Logic and computers ever existed, people used to record music using these huge 2-inch reel-to-reel tape machines. These machines would be very big and definitely not portable, and they would be very expensive to maintain. But in the early days of recording popular music, uh, music used to be recorded live. And basically what this means is that they typically, uh, a producer and uh, would get a bunch of musicians together and have them all play the song in the same room at the same time. And the engineer's job would be to capture that using whatever microphones and mixing consoles they he had access to at the time. And a lot of times the engineer would set up the mics for the instruments first they would do a few run-through rehearsal takes, and then the red light would be on the studio, and the song would be cut live a lot of times with a full 10, 50 to 10 to 20-piece band. Um, you know, but the reason why this was so industry standard for a very long time is because most of the time, most professional recording studios basically only had three to four to two-track tape machines to work with, which basically meant that since they didn't have a million tracks to use, Certain instruments had to be married together onto a limited amount of tracks that they had. But this later on all changed when 16-track tape machines came out. But for now, this was just the way things were done for a very long time. But really, if you think about it, who was the first person to invent the ability to record more than one track by yourself without having to do it all live? Well, the pers- that person would be the one and only Les Paul. Les Paul, along with creating the iconic electric guitar everybody knows and loves today, was also the founder of multi-track recording. He invented the 8-track tape machine and used it on many hit records he recorded in the early 50s he recorded with Mary Ford. Now this brings me back to this week's song and artist, and that is Suspicion by Terry Stafford. Now the main reason as to why this song sounds so muddy is because the man that produced this track, Bob Summers, played all the instruments on the song except for bass, and he brought in a guy named Ron Griffin to play the bass on the song. Now, I'm not 100% sure exactly how he was able to do this, but I have a pretty good theory as to how he was able to multi-track the song. Now, Bob Summers was Mary Ford's brother, and Mary Ford at the time was married to Les Paul. Now, I'm sure that because of this connection, Bob Summers was probably able to get a hold of an 8-track tape machine that Les Paul invented, and therefore he was able to play more than just one instrument on this track and not do it all live at the same time with the full band. Now, one really interesting thing about this song is that before it ever got released by a label, it was recorded independently without a label at Bob Summer's home studio in Los Angeles. Um, after the song was recorded by Terry Stafford, um, his him and his manager pitched the track to many different labels in L.A. to see if one would be interesting in putting out the single. It would soon enough caught the, catch the attention of a KFWB disc jockey named Gene Weed, and he took it to John Fisher, who at the time just formed a new label, record label, Crusader Records. He heard it and decided to take a chance on it and spend many hours remastering the track, and it became the second single to be released on that label. Now, before I end this podcast, I wanted to point one more very interesting and mind-blowing fact about this record. And that is, is that all about when it was released. See, the single came out in February of 1964. 
And the significance of it being released that month and year is that that was a month and year that the Beatles had just arrived in America and they made the American debut in the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th of 64. Right after that, they had at least seven of their songs in the top 40. When this happened, many American acts were getting single-handedly knocked off the charts. But this song, despite the fact that it was an American non-Beatles track, was able to break into the upper half of the top 10 when the Beatles held down all top five spots. And at the end of its chart run, it broke into the top five, peaking at number three, where the week before, the Beatles held down all top five spots in the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The first time any band did that for that chart. Now, I know a question you might have for me is, Sam, who are the female backup singers on this track? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that question. They were just unknown backup singers that were probably just hired for that recording session, and that's it. I mean, I have to ask Bob Summers if he remembers who they were, but I'm not sure if he did or if he does, but that would be definitely a good question to ask him. So Terry Stafford had one more hit after the song, and then he had some bigger hits on the country charts, and then he kind of faded into obscurity. Now, one more thing I want to say about him is that the Crusader Records is a tiny, small, little independent label. And it wasn't uncommon for a big hit back then to be released on a tiny, small, independent label. A lot of times they got picked up by a bigger, uh, major label, but a lot of times the original Master was released on a tiny, small, independent label. And Special is a really good example of a song that was, re- that was originally released on a tiny, small, independent label. It was a big hit, though. All right, so um, that concludes uh, episode 31 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you liked my analysis on this week's song, you found it interesting, you learned some really cool facts about this song, I turned you on to a brand new song you've never heard of before, um, please email me at samltwilly at iCloud.com. And uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at uh, iHeartOldies. And you can also check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, as you can see, this is all in one episode, no two-parters, because, you know, I like to keep it all in one episode for this particular artist and song. And yeah, so um, stay tuned for what I'll be doing uh, for next week's song and artist. And I'll let you know when I'm able to get that uh, guy on the show. And I'll let you know if I'm if uh, if I'll if I'll have him on the show as a guest. Um, the guy that my age also loves his music a lot. Okay, so um, I'm Sam Williams, and uh, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy.